You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, finally, finally, these professional MMA fighters are starting to adapt my personal preferred strategy when it comes to how to begin a fight. And that is sprint straight across the cage and kick the other guy on the nuts. Yeah. I've been saying it for years. <laughs> you know, some ideas seem obvious in retrospect, but you have to appreciate the true visionaries who were out there in the wilderness screaming it from the rooftops back when it mattered. Yeah, first. Yeah. An early adapter. That's right. Of how to start a fight. Then I would jump out of the cage and run back to the locker room, mm-hmm. get my bags packed and my clothes on as fast as I could. I assume you got your bindle. You got your bindle ready to go so you can hop a passing freight yeah, train. Just catch a cab straight to the airport and I'm out of town before Darren Till is even up. You know, Jorge Masvidal chooses to stick around and fight another eight minutes. That would not be my way. You don't, you don't feel like maybe you want to hang around and see if you can get an eye poke in there? Maybe grab some shorts, uh, get your toes in the fence. Who knows? I mean, those would be plans B, C, and D if plan A didn't go off like it was supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I feel like one thing we've learned is that if you really mix up the fouls, your chances of facing any meaningful repercussions go from slim to basically non-existent. You get one of everything. Yeah, yeah. So you might as well go with a grab bag. An assortment. Just throw all the fouls out there. Yeah. Verbal abuse. Is that against the rules? Uh, Putting uh, fingers in orifices. I know that's oil. a favorite of yours. Checking the oil? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I was talking about, you know, maybe like spreading open a cut with your hands. I mean, that's just all in a day's work right there. <laughs> yeah. That's just savvy veteran shit. Remember, if you want to support the show, we got Cowboy Astronaut cigarettes, t-shirts, and Dundasso t-shirts available on demand all the time, whenever you want them, over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise and we have to make a programming note here yeah. that will really pertain only to Coleman Event Podcast patrons. This week, everything will go off as scheduled. Yes. We think, barring unforeseen happenings. But we, we anticipate a normal week for the Coleman Event Podcast, doing the show today, live chat and road agents on Wednesday, followed by uh, Power Hour on Friday. Next week, the public schools are out for spring break. Spring break, woo! So you and I will both separately be taking our families on trips. Yeah, because it's either that or you sit around the house all week with them, which especially for a couple of guys who work from home, man, no, that's a, that's a non-starter for me because you make it to about Tuesday until I start hearing like, I'm bored. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I bet you are. Yeah, get a job, uh-huh. kid. They're, they're hiring down at the mines. Contribute to the family. You go work in the mines. In some way. So we anticipate a normal co-main event podcast next Monday, March 25th. Then we'll be out for the rest of the week. Taking the week off. Picking up again, as normal, April the 1st, April Fool's Day. Or will we? Oh, I don't know. 
the week after that. We, we need to work on some April Fool's Day specials. Do we, though? Yeah. Do we really? Can uh, we just let the day pass without a... Hand buzzer. Whoopee cushion? Squirting flower lapel. Sounds like we got it under control. I'm not anticipating any problems at all. Fake dog poop. Or is it? I mean, that one never gets old. That's just a <laughs> no. trusty old standby. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the pinnacle of human achievement. We got music again this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. Beads. Beads. Three rounds as usual this week in the Coming Event Podcast. In round number one, Jorge Masvidal and Darren Till squeezed a whole lot of living into their eight minutes together. What's next for Game Bread and Dilly Tills? And in round number two, perhaps the biggest surprise of the year so far is that there's a co-main event round called A Three-Piece and a Soda, and it's not about somebody getting free Popeye's chicken for life. And in round number three, the way the welterweight division has been going, I half expect Stephen Thompson and Anthony Pettis to brawl inside Pretty Tony's Land Rover while it's going through the automated car wash. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Frank Frank. Okay. So that could either be a first and a last name, or it could be a descriptor of what kind of guy Frank is. He's a Frank Frank. Yeah. I was thinking more of it was like a Sirhan Sirhan situation. That could also be true. Yeah. He's not a reticent Frank. No. He's a Frank Frank. He's going to tell it to you the way he sees it. Here he is, telling it to us like he sees it. Did Uzdemir get screwed on that split decision against Reyes? And regardless, did this showing allow Johnny Walker to leapfrog Dom as the most hashtag would watch light heavyweight? So this was, what is this, a co-main event? Is that what this was? On uh, Fight Night 147? No, it was, oh, it was Leon before. Edwards, Gunnar Nelson. Of course. Yeah. yeah, how could I forget Leon Edwards versus Gunnar Nelson? Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that, that later. That turned out uh, to be a cracker. Yeah. Dominic Reyes gets the split decision win against Vulcan Ozdemir. Uh, I guess Dominic Reyes preserves his status as a, as a top prospect at 205. He improves to 11-0. He's won what, five fights in a row in the UFC. Uh, this wasn't necessarily like the highlight real victory that we wanted to see from Dominic Reyes. Uh, it's clearly better than a loss, obviously. But, like, I don't know, Ben, do you feel like now that you've seen 15 minutes of Dominic Reyes against Volkan Ozdemir uh, in a fight that, frankly, I thought Volkan Ozdemir was probably going to get the nod, are you more impressed or less impressed here with, uh, what's this guy's nickname? The Devastator. Yeah. Anyway, less impressed, honestly. Yeah. I, I mean, I especially, and maybe this is unfair to him, but you're going to come up against some expectations when you're undefeated, young guy in the light heavyweight division, everybody's looking at you as, how does this guy stack up against John Jones? Right. Like, down the road. Yeah. Everybody is going to put that on you. And so, when you go out there, especially at this point in his UFC career, everybody is trying to use each new fight as material to answer that question. And if they're doing that here it doesn't look like you're going to be a real serious challenge anytime soon. And I mean, he kind of invites that by at the end in a very awkward post-fight interview with a lot of long fraught pauses saying to, you know, he doesn't know who's next, but John Jones, I'm coming for you. And it's like, man, if you have to wait until the very last scorecard is read in order to know whether or not you won that decision, that's not the time to really Try to strike fear in the heart of the best fighter in the world. Yeah. Depending on how that last scorecard comes out, you're either coming for John Jones or it's 
Hey, Corey Anderson. Yeah. I know there's a fight card coming up down there in Duluth. That's right. Let's How get it on the books. How about you and me meet at the Duluth Center? Let's get something on the calendar. Well, and this was a close enough fight that when they go to the decision, I'm like, it could go either way. And I, I thought Volkanovsmir was going to get it, too. Yeah. I mean, it was close enough that it couldn't feel like a robbery either. Right. Way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, if you're out there getting taken down by Volkanovsmir and you're being just kind of like out-aggressioned by Volkanovsmir and you're not managing to use the range the way you know, you'd know you think a guy of his size would be able to, like that would be one of the advantages that he would have over somebody like Volkanovsmir, then I don't see things going super great for you against John Jones, at least not right now. I mean, maybe in like two years you get better and you hope John Jones gets worse. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one did not make me come away. And like, if you're looking at it like, okay, there's one possible contender who had a chance to impress us and didn't. Does that leave Johnny Walker in a better spot? I mean, he has had the more memorable fights, but they're also against lesser opponents. I mean, right. this was, you know, he fought uh, Ovin St. Prue before this, but then Volkan Ozdemir, like that's a... Uh, you're starting to get into the serious guy territory at light heavyweight. And in fairness, Dominic Reyes went through his first three octagon opponents like a hot knife through butter. Now he's starting to get up there into the the mid-majors, so to speak. He's fighting the Ovin St. Prus of the world, the Volkan Ozdemirs. He's starting to have, I don't know if you'd say trouble. I guess he had some trouble against Volkan Ozdemir, but like, you know, unanimous decision win against OSP, split decision win against Volkan Ozdemir. Uh, It's certainly not a verdict of any kind, kind on the on the fitness of Dominic Reyes as a as a uh, prospect like the guy's only 29 years old which is basically a baby in the light heavyweight division I mean so, John Jones only what like like 32 or something yeah like, well John Jones is just like the world's toughest toddler in this division okay. he's out there whipping everybody's ass he's got another 10 years to go uh sure he does but <laughs> uh it's not it's not the end-all beat-all verdict on Dominic Reyes but at the same time like, I don't even know what you do with the guy after this. I don't think you get, the split decision win against Volkan Ozdemir doesn't strike me as a springboard to, like, bigger and better things. Uh, hot take that I, opinion I'm not even totally sure that I'm ready to stand behind, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I can't wait to hear it. Throw it out there, see if you can catch it. Nothing piques my interest in somebody's hot take like them prefacing it by telling me they don't even know if they believe it themselves. I'm just going to say some words. You're just saying stuff. Just going to open my mouth and let some words fall you out. You came to the right place, my friend. Maybe right now the best thing you could do at light heavyweight is not pop up on the radar as the hot new contender. I don't even think that's a hot take. I think that's just wisdom. Lay low. Like just kind of sleepily creep along up that division. Don't draw any undue attention to yourself. Definitely don't tell John Jones you're coming for him. But, you know, little by little, baby, step it up. And you get some time to improve and get your your octagon experience. Maybe you get some time for John Jones to take his shirt off in the club and diminish his own athletic performances down the road. Start accepting those free drinks from strangers yeah, maybe, again. Maybe he'll eventually decide that this turning down free drinks... For the sake of avoiding Torino Ball is just no way to live. It's a craft cocktail. It's got a little muddled mint in the bottom of it, a garnish of uh, orange peel on top, and just a dash of Torino Ball. Yeah, in there. we just we salted the rim with Torino Ball. But maybe now is the time where you want to be like, oh yeah, hey, that Johnny Walker seems like he's really impressing people. Let him have the next yeah, shot. I don't even think that's a hot take, man. I think that's just that's just math. Like if you're Dominic Reyes, 
and the and the next fight for John Jones is Johnny Walker. I got to think you you ought to consider yourself somewhat lucky at this point. Although I'm sure he would not. I'm sure he'd be hot about it. He probably wants everyone to know that he's coming for John Jones. But considering what we talked about last week, in that there might be a little bit more gamesmanship in John Jones's declaration to stay busy than maybe we had first, uh, you know, given him credit for that. He's got all these kind of young, hungry contenders coming up. Maybe it's best for him to pick them off before they are quite ready for the John Jones test. Like yeah, Dominic Reyes, he could have another handful of fights before yeah. he's, he's all the way there as number one contender. Next question this week comes from Rom deep who writes Nathaniel Wood keeps looking more impressive with each subsequent appearance with Darren Till in decline, is Wood the next great British hope? I had not thought about this before we got this email, uh, but Nathaniel Wood has been looking good. He gets this second-round submission win uh, at UFC Fight Night 147. He's 16-3 overall. He's 3-0 and in the UFC. Had a bunch of wins in, in Cage Warriors right before that. He's a bantamweight, so you know the little guys sometimes fly a little bit more under the radar than like if you were a, a light heavyweight or a heavyweight. But I think there's a lot of stuff to like about Nathaniel Wood. He's a, an aggressive guy. Uh, he seems to have decent stand-up. Just a very uh, advantageous submission to to win yeah. this thing. Like when he got the chance to do it, he was going for it. Yeah. And uh, you weren't getting out of it. Yeah. I would say pump the brakes a little bit. I understand the impulse to be like, who's going to carry the the mantle for the British people now in the UFC Especially, you know, Michael Bisping's retired. Darren Till has lost two straight now. Had a shot at the title. Didn't get there. But first of all, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but I wouldn't say yet Darren Till is in decline. That seems a little unfair. Lost a couple fights is what happened. Yeah. But I don't know if you just, when you're looking at who Nathaniel Wood has fought, he has looked good in those fights, but there's some much stiffer competition waiting up ahead at that division. Like, you want to talk about where there's some deep end, the the whole top ten basically of bantamweight. You start getting some deep end stuff, and like yeah. some of the people he's fought so far, you're just like, okay, you're getting your work in, but I don't. I need to see more against better before I'm like you're Britain's next top fighter. Is the position of Britain's next great hope a job that we need to fill? I mean, and I'm not like, I'm just, I know what you're in saying. all seriousness, I'm asking this question. Like, it's not uh, a huge destination for the UFC anymore. Not right now. No. And like, you know, even during the day when Michael Bisping was, was filling that role and was like clearly the, the linchpin in the UFC's uh, plans for what they called at the time world fucking domination. Like you go over to, to Europe and you're going to have Michael Bisping on the card and like, he's going to do good things for you. Like, even in those days, I don't know that Michael Bisping was, like, a huge draw, per se, for the UFC. Like, a big, huge pay-per-view draw, let's say. Uh, I think before he finished up, he got a lot more popular than he was back in, in those days. But at the same time, like, I don't necessarily get a Canada-style vibe or even an Ireland-style vibe from the way the British fans turn out to support their guys. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's just like, we haven't necessarily seen a British fighter turn into a quote unquote MMA superstar, like a box office, uh, uh, juggernaut like a George St. Pierre or Conor McGregor based on the fact that they have all these fans at home. That'll, that'll turn out for him. Do you think like, yeah, am I wrong about no, that? No, you're not wrong. Well, and I wonder 
like if you talk about how much they need somebody, like one person to jump up and be like, he's the guy. Yeah. Uh, when they do go to England, they sell out pretty much immediately just because you're bringing a UFC fight there and there's enough, like you have enough volume in terms of British fighters that you can put enough people on the card. You know, you can have a couple Welshmen fight each other, stuff like that. It'll It's going to sell out every single time. And yet it also creates a TV problem back in North America for you because of the, the time difference. Like if you want to have it prime time in England, then you're going to have to have it afternoon event back here. And so that was always kind of the, the sticking point. Even when Conor McGregor was like, let's do a huge event in Croke Park that we had to talk about, like it was the new Dallas Cowboy Stadium. And it makes it difficult, like, okay, how are you going to do pay-per-view back home for like a really big event? Like, are you going to do it just at a weird hour there? Or are you going to try to do it at a weird hour here? So maybe they just figure, all right, England's a place where we go two, three times a year. We sell a whole bunch of tickets. We get locals behind their guy, but we don't necessarily need one British superstar to pin all our hopes on. Yeah. Don't get mad at me, British fans. I'm just... It's too late for that. I didn't mean it like that. Next question this week comes from... Scouser's going to let you know. (laughs) Devin Scott. Uh, If you have not been keeping up with Max Holloway's Twitter feed, do yourself a favor and check out his masterclass in throwing shade. Twitter rants do not make potential fights more intriguing, but when done right, it's pretty fucking funny. What's your take? Now, I assume we're talking about uh, Holloway getting it into getting into it with Conor McGregor over the weekend, uh, which again is another example of Conor McGregor, who's over there in Boston this weekend celebrating St. Patty's Day, going like to the do. parade, going yeah. to the hockey game, climbing up on the bar, promoting that proper twelve, and announcing his presence. Uh, Jumps on Twitter and kind of like throws some shade at uh, the note or at uh, at uh, Max Holloway, unprovoked really, except for the fact that they fought in Boston, right? They fought at the Boston Garden. McGregor's in Boston, right? Thinking about his hot times there. Uh, this is the the thing, the approach that we've talked about with Conor McGregor a few times on the show now, where like he allegedly has this fight against Donald Cerrone that they are trying to negotiate for July, and yet the thing that we see the most from him is him just kind of popping up on social media, taking swipes at people. Yeah, well, but he does do it in a different way. Like Devin Scott makes a, a good point here. Like he's not doing it the usual way, where it's like, you know what, fuck your mother, you fucking piece of shit. I'll beat your ass. Like it's not that. It's a little more subtle. It's like it's the thinking man's fighter Twitter beef guy. Uh, again, like before, you know, we talked about when he would visit the Jameson Distillery. Yeah, looking at the book of names, uh-huh. basically. <laughs> like he's waiting to find out which house the sorting hat puts him into. <laughs> yes, yeah, and so I feel like. He is able to, he knows that we know what he's doing. So he doesn't need to be super explicit and aggressive about it. He can just, it's a little more playful, a little more cerebral, if you will. I appreciate that. I mean, I don't even know what Conor McGregor is doing. Like, he's just spouting off. Mm -hmm. And he's made fun of uh, Max Holloway's sunglasses on social media before. So he's really just kind of going back to the well with this diss. And then I do have to admit that I think you're right. Max Holloway comes pretty subtle, but pretty strong in his response here. I like the way he opens where he says, LOL, there you are, my brother. Like, <laughs> yeah. which is oh, true. Yeah. Like we've all been kind of uh-huh. looking around for Conor McGregor. Like what's he doing? Where's he at? Oh, he's smashing dude's cell phones out in front of the Fontainebleau down there in, in Miami. 
Glad you were got, got to relive your best years today in Boston. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Like that, that was kind of suggesting that was the pinnacle for you. And also him going on and on about making the point that like, hey, I was 21 years old and I was a skinny punk kid. Yeah. And we went to the, the judge's scorecards on it. Like, hey, I, he says at one point, I believe I'd beat 21 year old Max too. Only I'd finish him inside of two rounds and I wouldn't let him tear my ACL in the process. And I know we're just talking shit here, kind of, but he is making some decent points here. That like a when, lot of these people who have wins over Max Holloway, you had wins over like a kind of prototype of Max Holloway. Right. I like when he says that if Conor McGregor is bragging about beating 21-year-old Max Holloway, that he shares that trophy with Dennis Bermudez. <laughs> and then, of course, he goes on to... Uh, That's kind of a strange burn, though, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah? You think you're so good because you beat me? This other guy beat me, too, so in your face. This whole thing for Max Holloway is somewhat like self-deprecating like while he is doing it, which is one of the things I find somewhat charming about it. Like... Saying that you would beat 21-year-old version of you, too, is like you are acknowledging your own kind of like fallibility of the past. And then, of course, he breaks out this uh, link to Mike Bad to the Bone on MMA Junkie, uh, lists in all of his accomplishments, and he says, you know who I share these trophies with? Nobody. How do you fare against 21-year-old Chad Dundas? Uh, depends on what hour of the day it is. <laughs> okay, it's before 10 p.m. Probably not great. You think you think you would do better after 10 p.m. now? I'm saying that there's you a much be better. Awake. That's true, but there's a much better opportunity that I could catch 21 year old Chad Dunn slipping. Okay, after 10 p.m. Yeah, maybe he's leaning up against the post in a bar with his his beer at such an angle that it's about to spill on his shirt at any moment. Yeah, he's probably giving people the what for, telling them <laughs> starting about all sentences his with. Now I'm going to tell you something. That's exactly right. Next question this week comes to us from former Portland Trailblazers star, star Damon Stoudemire. Oh, good to hear from him. Yeah. So the boogie band done lost his ever-loving steel pole kick in mind. I believe we're talking about Tony Ferguson. I here. guess so. And not, most, uh, not the most sensitive of terms from Damon Stoudemire. No, he's, but... uh, he's not pulling any punches here. Fighters suffering mental breaks is far from unprecedented. See Rampage Jackson's energy drink failed or fueled, wait for it, Rampage in all yeah. caps through town, uh, evading... 5-0 in his custom Johnny Hendricks S monstrosity of a vehicle. We should point out before we go any further <laughs> that Rampage Jackson, when he went on this quote unquote rampage through the city, was driving a monster truck with his own picture on yep. the side of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, when he went to court over that, uh, blamed it on not eating or drinking for a few days. And in an interview with the Orange, Orange County Register, and this is still my favorite part of it, said, who knew that not eating or drinking for a few days could mess with your mental state. Well, I thought everybody. <laughs> but I digress. Sure, the UFC can build a state-of-the-art facility to assess, improve, and maintain its fighters' physical well-being, but is it doing enough for their mental health? So I think after some of that shade that we started out with, we actually get to a... Uh, yes, a real question. An interesting question here. It's a tough one, though, because the nature of the sport is such that you just don't have that much day-to-day -day contact necessarily with your fighters. Yeah. It's tough for the, to put that on the UFC. It's not like if you're the Cleveland Browns and the guys are showing up to the practice facility almost every day of the week and you're seeing them for physical therapy and you have a little bit more of a chance to observe them in person. With a fighter, especially one who's been injured and here or there, you might not see them for months. You know, it's, it's one thing... If he has some reason to come to the facility, if he tells you, like, hey, I'm having knee problems, then you bring him in, you look at him, all that kind of stuff. 
but you don't necessarily know what's going on with these guys when they go home. And what are you really going to do for Tony Ferguson here? We talked about this a little bit on the Power Hour, how it does feel strange now to go back and think about how we have talked about Tony Ferguson in the past and be like, oh man, he's kind of crazy. Like, yeah. I love these like weird borderline nonsensical rants he goes on and then have something like this happen. And then it makes you revise all that other stuff and go, oh, wait, did I think that this was just fun, crazy guy, like fun, wacky MMA fighter personality? And really, it might have been something more serious. Yeah, uh, that and that is kind of like a sobering <laughs> realization to find this out. I saw that uh, Tony Ferguson had tweeted or issued a statement saying that the UFC is helping him uh, get some the kind of help that he needs. And so hopefully that he'll get his feet under him again and be back in the cage. Although where and when Tony Ferguson continues his MMA career is sort of like the least pertinent question yeah. at this point. Well, and a lot of that stuff that came out made it seem like getting him to accept the idea that he needed help yeah. was one of the big barriers that people were facing. Cause it wasn't like there were no people in his life around who could try to steer him towards that. It was, and as often is in those situations, getting the person to believe and understand you need some help right now. There's yeah. some stuff, the stuff you think is going on is not going on. Yeah. And the question of whether the UFC should take a more active role in fighters lives, I think is kind of a tricky one. Uh, we could talk probably for an entire show about classifying UFC fighters as independent contractors and whether or not they should be, you know, full-time employees of the UFC. The fact is right now they are independent contractors and for being classified that way, the UFC already has a lot of intervention into their, into their personal lives, especially, you know, when they're in the USADA pool, they basically have to let the UFC and USADA know where they are at all times. Uh, which could be considered overreach, I think, if you really wanted to to get into it that way. Um, and I don't know exactly what we expect the UFC to be able to do in a situation like this, because like you said, it's not like the UFC's roster is a college football team, right? It's not like they're all sleeping in the dorms and showing up to the facility and having meals together and whatnot. They're scattered around. Tony Ferguson is out there in California doing his training, doing his his living so I don't know how you really keep tabs on them. I mean, I would. I think we are all in agreement that we would like to see the UFC do stuff like, you know, create a retirement plan if fighters wanted to take advantage of it, so that they they don't wind up broken and broken when this whole thing is over. But like, I don't know. I I in terms of mental health, I think it's great that they are involved now. Now that we know that there is a problem, and maybe they will end up getting Tony Ferguson some sort of top of the line help, and I think that that would be great. But it's kind of like when you see you know, a guy get pulled over for DUI or something like that. Like there's literally nothing you could do about that. If you were the UFC, uh, just because you don't have that kind of access to their lives until, until after it becomes a problem. So I'm not totally sure what could be done. Here's a question. And maybe it's a, a question that should be discussed more on a, a, a later podcast, but do you think MMA fighters experience mental health issues at a higher rate than athletes in other sports. Like we've talked before about how one of the things that makes MMA fighters interesting is because they're a diverse set of characters from all types of backgrounds. And a lot of times they did not set out with this as their first goal. And they wound up here. It's kind of a, as Greg Jackson likes to say, kind of like a, a place for misfits, like pro fighting always has been. Do you think that that also lends itself to 
that you see more mental health issues? Um, I don't know. I don't know that I'm like totally qualified to answer that question. I think you might need to ask. Do a like study. A, I need a, you to go do a study right about now about that. I think that there's a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, like look before you leap style personalities in the sport. Like you mean leap before you look? Yeah. Yeah. Leap before you look. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, it seems like there are a lot of people that aren't necessarily worried about 20 years from now, 15 years from now. Some of them are like, some of them are, are, uh, surprisingly, uh, you know, conscious of, of the, the stress that they're putting on their body and like that they may in fact be mortgaging their, their future in order to do this now. Uh, but I don't know about like, are they more, do they experience more mental health issues? I mean, I suppose in combat sports and, and, uh, contact sports like football and stuff, you are like physically altering your brain. Okay. So like in that way, like there's going to be some, some changes to how that, that particular organ functions. And it's a pretty influential bodily organ, right? Like it can, it controls your whole body. So, uh, I mean, I think that kind of stuff can't help, but be negative. And, but other than that, like, I don't know if people come into the sport more predisposed to that. I think there's the, oftentimes there's trauma in people's backgrounds. Like it, like we said, it takes a certain kind of person to become a professional fighter, to want to fight another human stripped to the waist in a cage for money takes a a different kind of human. And I think a lot of the people that, that, you know, get into that high level of, of combat and martial arts have something in their past that like, uh, makes that seem like a, like a good or like a preferable situation to them. Yeah. So like, maybe, I don't know. That's, that's, You'd have to ask somebody smarter than me. I look forward to your detailed study. Uh, last question this week comes from us from Dylan Wanagal or Wanagiel? Wanagal. Sorry if I'm late to the party on this observation. Did you guys notice during the March Madness selection show on CBS on Sunday, there was a commercial promoting the NCAA itself, which happened to also feature the exact same happy ass royalty free song, which opens the Patreon Power Hour? What? People out here using that music? I mean, I guess it's if you're the NCAA, it probably seems quite cheap. Uh, I mean, either there is a CME patron working for the NCAA ad agency, or did y'all just pull off the greatest subliminal marketing campaign of all time? Yes. Just saying, no, yes. let's say yes, we did that. Speaking of the big dance, would Montana be beating Michigan be a bigger upset than Sarah over GSP discourse than our uh, beloved Montana Grizzlies basketball team back in the dance? They're going to play the second-ranked Michigan Wolverines. Yeah, that could be a tough one for them. On Sunday. Yeah. But that's, I mean, for people who don't know how it usually goes for Montana basketball, uh, you know, if you win the Big Sky tournament, you can get in the, the NCAA tournament. It's get kind an of automatic the, birth. Kind of the only way you do get in the NCAA yeah. tournament if you're from the Big Sky conference. Nobody from the Big Sky is getting an at large bid yeah. to the NCAA. So every once in a while, Montana will surprise somebody by winning their first round game. I remember it happened when we were in grad school and. I knew at first I, I was driving down the street near campus and a shirtless man ran out in the street <laughs> and went, woo, woo, and like stopped traffic. And I was like, what the, oh, hey, Montana must have won that game. All right. And sure enough, they did. But most of the time out in the first round. Yeah. Well, and they should have got a higher seed this year. I think they got a 15, which is pretty low. They should have, they should have been a little bit higher. It's tough to go out there and play Michigan in the first round. But I still think your chances are better than Matt Sarah against GSP. Probably so. New York Times, I saw printed a thing saying Montana's going to beat Michigan as one of their upset picks. Well, okay. That's optimistic. The Gray Lady, patron of uh, the paper of record. Yeah, I don't know if that helps you. It's really written now. Once the, once the ball is in play, as it were. Now that the Wolverines can put that on their bulletin board and cut that out. 
All the money the NCAA is making, they can't afford something like they, they make their own music. You'd think, right? Instead of go buying it for sixty bucks or whatever off a off a royalty free website. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Then Jorge Masvidal versus Darren Till was your fight of the night from Saturday at UFC Fight Night 147, a.k.a. UFC on ESPN Plus 5, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night Dill versus Masvidal. UFC London. Each one of those guys pocketed an extra 50 Gs. I guess they earned it. Like, this was a pretty a pretty fun fight to watch. It was a real crackerjack there for, you know, eight minutes or so before Jorge Masvidal ended up knocking Darren Till into the black land. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, started out with Jorge Masvidal charging across the cage and immediately, immediately, first strike of the fight. Punting Darren Till right in the in like the pills. jumping sidekick to the nuts. Right in the fruits. And then Darren Till recovers, comes right back out, straight left hand, puts Masvidal on his back. I mean, We're having you, a good time. You then. couldn't script it any any better. There's an eye poke in there also, I believe, right? Somebody got eye poked. Uh, early on, as you mentioned, if you take out the, uh, the shot to the pills there, it uh, looked like Darren Till was going to have his way. It looked like Darren Till was just going to be kind of too big and too powerful for Jorge Masvidal. Uh, Masvidal said afterward he was having a hard time gauging Till's timing in the first round. Uh, then wily old Jorge Masvidal starts to figure things out, uh, ends up uh, really kind of frustrating Darren Till a little bit in that second round. Till likes to 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 jump in with that lancing left hand, and Masvidal was, was countering it well, kind of giving uh, Darren Till some fits there and ends up knocking him out with, what was it, an overhand left? Yeah, it was like a, like a like kind of a leaping in left hook at, from like a stance shift. And that you talk about uh, frustrated by the timing, it ends up being Jorge Masvidal who uses the timing to, to his benefit. You know, he, he was just able to figure out a way to keep Till guessing. He didn't quite know exactly what he was going to do, and he wasn't following like a, a rhythm that you could really time. And... Chaotic entries, I believe it was described on the broadcast. Dan Hardy, he had chaotic entries. Like the chaotic entries. But yeah, I mean, you, you know, kind of the untimed attack. You can't really guess exactly when it's coming or what angle it's coming from. And you probably think that Darren Till did not necessarily go into this fight thinking Jorge Masvidal's left hand is the thing I got to watch out for. And yet kind of, it, it wasn't like that it was a super hard blow, it seemed, but it really surprised him. And as we've seen, you know, you get hit with that one hard shot, your legs stop working, you fall, and your head cracks back on the canvas, and that's the thing that really gets you. I mean, we've seen some of the worst knockouts I think that we've seen in MMA come from that. Like somebody gets hit with a blow that they don't really see coming, and they just fall like a like a tree like that, and that whiplash motion of the back of your head off the canvas, that's what really kind of knocks you out. Yeah. So this is a second loss in a row now uh, for Darren Till. Still just 26 years old, so still qualifies as sort of a hot young gun in the in the welterweight division. His loss 
previous to this was obviously to Tyron Woodley at their UFC 228 championship fight. It remains to be seen exactly kind of like what happens to Darren Till after this, obviously, whether or not he writes the ship and whether or not this uh, two-fight skid kind of ends up looking like an abnormality in his career. I still think the kid is is big for 170 pounds. He has good skills. I will say this, though. Uh, it's tough to lose two in a row when you talk about kind of how confident and how you think you're the best fighter in the world as much as Darren Till does. Now, we talked about on Friday's Power Hour about how Darren Till a lot of times comes off as completely reasonable, but in the kind of way where when I watch him, I think, oh, this guy's crazy, though, too. Like, He's wearing a yeah. mask of of reasonableness right now, but like if you spend too much time with Darren Till, eventually you'll be like, "Oh, this guy's crazy." I get it. I think if you're out at the pub with him, maybe you get a sense that there's there's a different guy behind that mask sometimes. Yeah. So like I don't know. How do you how do you respond to this now, Ben? Now that Darren Till has lost two in a row, uh, you know, considering kind of like. He was essentially, in some ways, I don't know that this is a, like a, a a direct comparison, but like in some ways, kind of trying to position himself as like the British Conor McGregor, talking about how you know he's going to be the champion, he's so confident, he's the he's the best fighter out there. That kind of stuff, it's 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 it, it casts a light on your two fight losing streak. Yeah, a little bit. Well, one of the things I wonder, we wrote a thing like for MMA Junkie, we're all kind of talking about what should Darren Till's next move be? You know, maybe he should go up to middleweight where. Maybe your your brain will take the hits a little better if you're not severely dehydrated to get down to welterweight. That kind of you know, and that's not necessarily a bad idea. My main thought was, don't freak out over this. Yeah, because you lose to Tyrone Woodley, who is up there among the great welterweights of all time. You lose to Jorge Masvidal, who is a real savvy veteran at this point. You, you know, you had him hurt in the first round, but he comes back and he, he can do that. He's a tough guy. And Jorge Masvidal had great stuff to say about Darren Till. He was like, yeah, he this did. guy is, he's going to go places. You know, don't sleep on this guy. And he's still young and still developing. And I think that that, for the most part, is true. Like, don't take these two losses as a sign. I need to change everything and go on a, a spiritual walkabout and change absolutely everything about my game plan or my fighting style. One thing I will say, though, is that for a lot of his career, you know, leading up to this, we saw Darren Till as more patient at times frustratingly so and it seemed like especially with this fight maybe it was being home in England maybe it was coming off the loss to Tyron Woodley it felt like he really wanted to go out there fast and make a big statement with a first round finish and was really kind of bring it to Jorge Masvidal in that first round and then didn't get that finish and Masvidal had a little more patience a little more poise maybe the the thing to do is just to kind of tell yourself you don't have to go out there and try to knock everybody's heads off right away to, you know, a five round fight, especially you need to plan to be there for all five rounds and and have a plan for that. But I do think that physically, like he seems to have all the tools. It seems like all the stuff is there. Yeah. I I think you kind of stay the course there if you're Darren Till. Yeah, I agree with you. And again, like he had that win over Steven Thompson and the win over Donald Cerrone previous to this uh, two losses. So it's not like he was a guy that that fought a bunch of nobodies and then jumped up to the top level and, and couldn't hang there. Like we are still in some ways trying to get a barometer on exactly how good Darren Till is, but we have evidence to suggest that he's pretty good and like will probably continue to have a spot among the, the upper tier of the welterweight division. I've talked to some fighters in the past about fighting at home 
and they have all talked about how kind of hard it is to fight, you know, either in your hometown or your home country that it, you know, it kind of breaks up the rhythm of fight week. You're not, you know, you probably are at a hotel, but a dad just like has a different vibe than, you know, when you travel to Las Vegas to have a fight and that you have a lot more, uh, distractions, people asking you for tickets, uh, trying to make a bunch of travel arrangements for your family, stuff like that. Uh, and then just like the added pressure, especially of being kind of like the main event star of this fight card, you know, uh, clearly the, the fans, uh, in London were letting Jorge Masvidal hear about it when he came out, like they were there to watch Darren Till. And I think a lot of that stuff can affect your psychological, uh, preparations and like how you perform once you get in there. Darren Till has been pretty honest about like the emotions that he experiences leading up to fights about how kind of scared and nervous he is, which I think everybody is. He's just... Uh, telling us the truth about it. And so like, it's not totally out. Uh, it's not a huge surprise, like to see him kind of fade into this second round, get frustrated. And then, you know, anybody can get knocked out by Jorge Masvidal. If you get punched, if a punch like that lands on your, on your jaw, you're going to get knocked out. So in, in many ways, I would agree with you that like, this isn't necessarily the loss to, uh, to take as a, a harbinger of doom. Like you need to smash everything about your preparations and, yeah. and uh, and start all over again. Um, you know, the thing that you said about the idea that maybe Darren Till, while seeming super reasonable, is also in some ways a crazy person, reminded me of, remember the story about how he ended up living in Brazil, which was like basically his coach in Liverpool telling him, if you stay here, you're going to die. Like, you're, you're, you're going to get like stabbed in a, in a bar or something and you're going to die. And then him going to Brazil for what he thought was going to be a few months and ends up being a few years. And that maybe gives you a look into what else might be going on with there until. Yeah. Wild and out is yeah. what it sounds like. If people tell you, you need to get out of your hometown before you get murdered. Yeah. You know, you didn't get there by accident. Let's say. Indeed. It does. Uh, it puts a lot of uh, a spotlight, let's just say, on Darren Till's next fight. Like, I think it would be better for him to win that one and not lose three in a row. But at the same time, we don't necessarily think that this is a uh, a make or break loss for Darren Till. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we can move on to round number two. Ben, did you see this post-fight interview from Jack Marshman after his win over uh, John Phillips? I did. He said a couple of things of note. First of all, that like... Right now, he's sort of like a part-time fighter because he's a paratrooper for the Army uh, over there in England. Here's his quote about asking the Army about fighting on this weekend's card. They sort of told me I wasn't fighting this weekend, like on Thursday. So I was sort of packing my bags and running away. To which a reporter sort of follows up and says, how does that work? With the, when the Army says it won't let you fight. And Jack Marshman says, we'll find out on Monday. Huh. Are you fucking kidding me? I assume this is going to work out for Jack Marshman, but kids, don't go AWOL from the military to have your fight. Just don't do that. It seems like a poor move to me. Well, Chad, maybe you want to tell it to a guy named Frank Dukes. Worked out okay for him, my man. I guess so. He went over there and won the goddamn Kumite. Here's the thing, though. Jack- Forrest Whitaker couldn't even tase his ass. Jack Marshman is only staying in the military until November. At that time, he's gonna uh, he'll retire and become a full-time fighter. Here's his quote. I wanted to get my full pension, so when I'm punch drunk and in a wheelchair, I have something to fall back on. When, huh? Not if, when. Just, are you fucking kidding me? Huh. Fucking kidding me? 
Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me had to throw out my initial uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week because some some breaking news happened. Just floated across the old timelines. While we were talking, I got the email, the press release that says the UFC and ESPN Plus have extended their deal and there's a new wrinkle in it. ESPN Plus is now the exclusive provider of pay-per-view events, residential pay-per-view events, in the United States. Yeah. Now, this is from the MMA Junkie uh, story on it, because, you know, naturally, you hear that and you wonder what the hell exactly that it means. For fans watching UFC pay-per-views from home, it now will be one-stop shopping. Events will be ordered online, then will be able to be streamed online or through connected devices like Apple TV, Roku, PlayStation 4, or Amazon Fire, for example. In other words, no more just going to your cable operator, buying it through them, and just having it come onto your TV like all the other cable stuff. Now you got to go through ESPN Plus for everything. Are you fucking kidding me? This seems like it could be kind of a big change. You fucking kidding me? People who watch pay-per-views in the United States. Are yeah. you kidding me? We're going to have to uh, let this one marinate for a little while, I guess. Yeah, I just don't like the idea of you telling me this is the only way to buy the pay-per-views like through the internet. Also, remember when we were talking before the ESPN Plus deal started and you you had signed up for a free trial in order to watch a college football game for ESPN Plus. Yeah. And then when you wanted to stop it, they were like, okay, we'll pause your account. Basically, we're going to hold on to your credit card information. And you got to like send them an email, or at least at that time you had to send them an email to, to like ask to, to uh, unsubscribe, basically. There wasn't a thing that you could just click on the internet where it was like unsubscribe from ESPN Plus. Had to email them, and they had to email me back. Now, I had to email them, and then they had to email me back. And now we're going to have to go through ESPN Plus for all our pay-per-view needs. Fucking kidding me? I'm not sure I like this. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, if we learned anything about... MMA culture, MMA fans, how to deal with the media. It's that you can get away with a lot of stuff if you have a cool catchphrase. Because because after the fight with Darren Till, Jorge Masvidal goes backstage and just bosses up on Leon Edwards, who is talking to him off camera while he is doing an interview with ESPN, walks over there and assaults that man. But then afterwards... Explains away saying, you know, he thought Leon Edwards was walking up to him with his hands up, was going to uh, sucker punch him. So he hit him with the three piece in a soda and then just glided out of there. And suddenly everybody's like, ha ha, yeah, that's awesome. Whereas in a different era, maybe of the UFC, that might be a huge problem to just go up there and punch a rival in the face backstage after the event itself has concluded. Yeah, we've seen people get fired for less than that. Way less. Way less. And I don't know that the UFC has had the final word on what it will do about this, if it does anything. I know Dana White was kind of, his initial comment was he was sort of in disbelief that it had happened. Yeah, which, come on, man. He he said, I can't believe this could happen. Really? Because I've been following your company for a while, and I can totally believe this. But he also... His response suggested that he put the blame on the UFC staff. It wasn't like, this is a disgusting act of violence by Jorge Masvidal. It was, we need to get better about stopping this kind of stuff from happening. Well, and that's like in a, in a, in a bygone day, you might have got fired for this. Now, I fully expect Jorge Masvidal and Leon Edwards to fight each other 
like at a hotly promoted UFC event at some point. Uh, Leon Edwards, obviously he beat Gunnar Nelson and like he beat him by split decision after what was not a bad fight, but it would also wasn't like a total barn burner. It wasn't one we'll be telling our grandkids about. And it kind of seemed like Leon Edwards was going to pick a fight with whoever won the main event. Cause he had full on already been getting into it with Darren Till. Yeah. Those guys were primed to have a feud had Darren Till beat Jorge Masvidal. It goes the other way, and then suddenly, seconds later, Leon Edwards is in the back scrapping with Jorge Masvidal. Seems like we had a, a, a certain course of action in mind yes. for Leon Edwards, no matter what happened in the main event. And I think for Jorge Masvidal, this is the kind of the thing I wanted to talk about here. Like, this puts him in a weird position, in a way, because he had just finished saying this week, and like, had almost like a star turn fight week for Jorge Masvidal shows up looking as, as co-main event podcast listener, John Oak said on Twitter, like a disillusioned pirate. Yes. I still love that. Uh, and then he started talking about how all of the trash talk and theatrics was bullshit. And maybe we could just be ourselves. I can't decide. Cause clearly this is Jorge Masvidal just being himself. See, that's what like, I would this say. This is incredibly on brand. I can't look at that. The three piece in a soda and say that man was not being himself there. I agree. Maybe and, too much himself. Yeah, I agree. And I think in some ways, like this is completely in keeping with Jorge Masvidal's ethos about trash talk. Like Leon Edwards was talking some trash. The, the ever real Jorge Masvidal took it straight to him right in the streets there on the, in the back, back of the UFC. Uh, but isn't it also like kind of weird for a guy who is just sort of like, let's stop all the trash talk and nonsense and essentially conduct ourselves as professionals to go out there and like attack a person in the back. Isn't that like isn't that a little weird? I don't, I mean, I don't get the sense. Here's the question I ask myself. Would Jorge Masvidal have done the exact same thing if there were no cameras around? Yes, absolutely. In yes, fact, he, he was on Ariel Helwani's show today, and he was sort of like, his attitude about it was, yeah, I got into a little bit of a tussle with Leon Edwards. I wouldn't have said shit about it, but it turned out it was on camera, and a bunch of people asked me about it, so now here we are. He was also like, I wish people would talk more about my win over Darren Till instead of wasting my whole interviews talking about Leon Edwards, which is kind of like, come on now. Yeah. You fought a guy in the back. <laughs> It's the same thing that we said after Khabib jumped over the fence and went after Dylan Dennis. Like, you guaranteed that that was going to be the story and not your dominant victory. You kind of did that to yourself. But I don't know that it necessarily is hypocritical because of how the situation unfolded. Like, his basically his argument was... This guy has been kind of running his mouth at me. I don't think he deserves to be able... I don't think he's earned the right to run his mouth at someone like me in this company yet. And so when he's doing an interview and the guy is yelling at him from you know the, the peanut gallery, basically, he gets fed up and he walks over there. And then when he says when he sees the way Leon Edwards is walking up on him, he decides, okay, it's, it's go time. And so I might as well get the first punches in. And I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem to me like like what he was complaining about was... You guys are faking this stuff yeah. to tr- try to get attention and to try to increase your your either your pocketbook in the end or your popularity or just notoriety in the short term. And like so you're putting on an act and he is not putting on an act. No, here. he clearly is not. And so in that sense, I'm like, OK, I understand. I also, though, feel like Danny Downs and I talked about this a little bit in our column. 
like we said, in another era of the UFC, you might get fired for this. Yeah. And, you know, if you were somebody different who Dana White disliked, you might get fired for it anyway here. But now it seems like it's going to be a net positive for Jorge Masvidal. I mean, you say he had a star turn. Yeah. This is not necessarily a detriment to that. He had himself a weekend, man. He had himself a week in London. And afterwards, like, this is the kind of thing MMA fans can rally around in a way, especially when you have a goddamn catchphrase to go with it. And so it makes me wonder, though, like, we seem to have just accepted this gradual slide to, you know, more theatrics, some real, like some less real. Like, Colby Covington thinks he can take the gimmick on and off, which you find out in the buffet line, maybe you can't. Jorge Masvidal is living the gimmick. Yeah. But it also seems like, we are not that far away from somebody being hit with a folding chair here. And is, are we okay with that? Because we eat this shit up. Like fans and media people, we love shit like this. And we're trending more in that direction. Like people realize that, you know, fighters are like, oh yeah, this is what gets me attention? Fine, I'll do that. And yet we keep edging more and more in the extracurricular direction. Is that where we want to go? No, I agree. And like you said, it, it could have been a detriment. Like I, recent evidence has suggested this will turn out to be the exact opposite of a detriment to Jorge Masvidal. And I guess that's like the thing, the question you just asked about, are we okay with trending more and more toward Monday Night Raw style theatrics is the thing that makes me feel like this was a little bit of a precarious move for Jorge Masvidal just because like he was trying to speak out against that kind of stuff in, in his interviews leading up to this fight and i also agree with you that like Jorge masvidal is not putting on airs here and he probably has a talk shit get hit style uh philosophy for himself and in that regard uh is certainly you know being himself and reacting as he would if there were no cameras around and so you 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 gotta kind of respect him for that i guess but at the same time like he was kind of trying to 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 talk us down from the conor mcgregor era and then he goes in the back and does some vintage epic Conor McGregor style shit with Leon Edwards. And now is probably going to have a much bigger fight because of it. Uh, and I mean, I guess I don't, I'm, I'm really torn and conflicted about whether I'm okay with going too far down that road. Uh, because I think it's only a matter of time before we find out the hard way that this isn't a scripted drama and that it is in fact real shit. And you, that like somebody could get hurt. Do you think that point will come when uh, Ben Askren fills up Dana White's convertible with cement? <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, I mean, I think you got to kind of still feel good for Jorge Masvidal, though. Like, here's a guy who's 34 years old. He's been in the game forever. Before that, he was fighting guys in the boat salvage yard uh, on the same. I don't You wouldn't even call them fight cards, right? But at the same gatherings, venues where, yeah. where Kimbo Slice got his start, he was in Strike Force. He's been around forever. Coming into this Darren Till fight, he'd lost two in a row in the UFC. Everybody says he's a he's a great guy. Everybody who who knows him says he's he's really easy to like. So I guess you know seeing him knock out Darren Till and now graduate into a thing that might be like a, a hotly contested feud with Leon Edwards probably turns out to be good for both him and Leon Edwards. Yeah. And Leon Edwards, frankly, had won a bunch of fights and was doing his best to be out there promoting himself. And I don't think anyone really knew who he was. Yeah. And that was the other part is that Leon Edwards, if you look at who he's beaten, he should be a bigger deal by now. Yeah, absolutely. But he's not because the wins themselves were kind of forgettable for in one way or another. Like this one over Gunnar Nelson. I mean, yeah, he won it. But – 
it wasn't like anybody is really dying to go watch the replay on that. And the same thing where he beat Donald Cerrone, and it was, you know, kind of the same thing. Like, that's, to some extent, just kind of his style. And we've already talked about how difficult it is to get noticed in the UFC without a card every weekend, and you don't have a super exciting style. You just have these wins that people forget almost immediately. Now you're the guy who was on the receiving end of the three-piece in a soda. People are going to remember that. If there aren't three-piece and a soda t-shirts out by now, Jorge Masvidal needs to get with Derek Lewis's shirt people. That's right. And have those things online. Ask ask Robert Whitaker who made, who made the Bobby Knuckle shirts for him and get on it. Because those you probably sell a couple shirts with three-piece and a soda I mean, shirts. if you can sell my balls was hot shirts, <laughs> damn it, you can sell three-piece and a soda. Uh, where are you wearing my balls is hot shirts? Church. Yeah. Church, Job uh, interview? Yeah. <laughs> you got a meeting with the accountant? Yeah. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the ballad of pretty Tony Pettis has weaved a tangled web up to this point. The former WEC and UFC lightweight champion, one-time Wheaties box cover boy, Went down to featherweight for a time in 2016 before moving back up to lightweight and going two and two over four fights uh, between UFC 213 and his most recent loss to Tony Ferguson at UFC 229. Now he's going up, moving up to welterweight to take on Stephen Thompson in the main event of UFC Fight Night 148, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night on ESPN Plus 6. UFC Nashville. UFC Nashville. This is going down at the Bridgestone Arena over there in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. What do you make of the 32-year-old Anthony Pettis now going to try his luck up there at 170 pounds? In general, I kind of like the idea of him trying his luck at 170, or at least I like, I'm open to see how that shakes out. This is a tough one to do it with, though. Steven Thompson? That's a tough matchup for him out the gates at welterweight, is it not? Yeah, Stephen Thompson, not a guy that we've heard a ton about recently, but a guy who clearly was at the top of the game uh, back in 2016, 2017, fought Tyron Woodley twice for the championship. Uh, he fought Rory McDonald prior to that. He fought Johnny Hendricks. He fought Jorge Masvidal. He fought Darren Till. He fought Robert Whitaker. Anybody who's anybody at these, at these weights, you know, middleweight, welterweight, Stephen Thompson has fought him, so it's certainly not a gimme No, for pretty Tony Pettis. Well, and style-wise, that's a tough matchup for him because it's not like you're necessarily going to surprise Stephen Thompson with your slick kickboxing. He knows that game. Yeah. He's pretty good at it. Yeah. So, also, I don't know. It, can Anthony Pettis still hurt people up at welterweight? Is his, is his power going to translate up at, up at welterweight? Or... Is he going to find himself that he has to be more of a volume guy and against people like Stephen Thompson, who at times can really frustrate you with just like footwork and his ability to kind of negate other people's offense? Like a lot of ways on paper, it just looks like a nightmare matchup for me to hit for, for him to me. For Anthony Pettis? Yeah. Do you think that Anthony Pettis is the better rounded MMA fighter than Stephen Thompson? Do you think he has, uh, like, let's say more ground skills, for example? Maybe, but. I don't see him taking Stephen Thompson down. Do you? I mean, I don't know. 
I guess Anthony Pettis is not known for his takedowns, obviously. He's uh, also like the kind of guy, like, I mean, he does have a tricky ground game, but it often works where he will hurt you on the feet or get you worried on the feet. You try to take him down or like you get in a scramble with him somehow. And then the next thing you know, he's locked on kind of an opportunistic submission. That's usually how his ground game works. It's not necessarily he's going to go out there, blast W, pass your guard, move to mount, hit you with elbows until you roll over and then choke you. Like he doesn't have that kind of ground game. Yeah. The decline of Anthony Pettis has been as slippery and precipitous as any we've ever seen in the sport. Prior to 2015, he was 18 and two and his two losses were a split decision to Bart Palaszewski at WEC 45 way back in 2009. And then he got decisioned by Clay Guida uh, in 2011 in his first UFC fight. After that, he ran off a string of wins, five in a row, won the title. Got the uh, Wheaties box. Got the Wheaties box. Was sort of like anointed by the UFC in a way that they don't totally do anymore. Right. Maybe because of experiences like they've had with Anthony Pettis. They were sort of like, this kid is the future. Turn around at UFC 185 and he loses the title to Rafael Dos Anjos. He is three and six since then. Since March of 2015, he is three and six. His wins are Charles Oliveira, Jim Miller, and Michael Chiesa. The losses are Dos Anjos, Eddie Alvarez, Edson Barboza, Max Holloway, Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson. So, like, that's a tough bunch. That's a respectable list of of losses in that run. Do you think that all, that list also tells you why you might want to get out of lightweight? Like, I mean, maybe part of it is that you're thinking the. The road has been kind of barricaded for you at lightweight. You already had the title. You lost to a lot of the contenders. You're not going to get those opportunities again. Maybe you go up and wait, and it's a clean slate the way a lot of people like to do, either going up or down. And you kind of have a new opportunity to make an impression on people. But also, man, it tells you what a shark tank lightweight is. If there's guys like Tony Ferguson, Dustin Poirier, and Max Holloway, like those are some of the guys you had to fight. Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, yeah. Max Holloway, that featherweight, but still. Well, yeah, and it also makes me wonder if maybe Anthony Pettis is starting to feel a little boxed in here because he tried featherweight, and the stay down there was not long. He fought Charles Oliveira and won, then he fought Max Holloway and lost, and again, losing to Max Holloway at 145 pounds, no shame in that. No. Because pretty much everybody is doing that these days. But yeah, man, uh, tried to go back to lightweight. That didn't really work out for him. I think it would be easy to imagine at this point if Anthony Pettis was like, well, shit, now what do I do? If I am indeed kind of locked out at 155, I don't have a, a ton of other options aside from welterweight. Yeah, but now you can eat you some steaks, get get some get some carbs back in your system. Not cutting the weight. Maybe next thing you know, you're head kicking these motherfuckers and knocking them out. Well, I mean, it would be uh, an auspicious debut at 170 pounds for Anthony Pettis if he beats Stephen Thompson, right? Yeah. You beat the Wonder Boy, the Wonder Man, and all of a sudden I think some people are uh, looking over their shoulders. You know what the odds are looking like for this? Is Anthony Pettis a, a big-time underdog? He's about, I'm looking at plus 365 for Anthony Pettis. So that's pretty long. Minus 460 for Stephen Thompson. Wow. So the odds makers really like the Wonder Man here. I mean, I... I kind of agree with the odds makers on that. I mean, it might be a little longer odds than I would have imagined, but you think style-wise, I would think that this would be the Wonder Man's fight to lose. Welterweight has been crazy, though. Sure. There's a lot of, uh, it's a heady time. There's a lot of change in the air. 
Jorge Masvidal's out here knocking out Darren Till. Kamaru Usman's taking the title off Tyron Woodley. I mean, if if Anthony Pettis did something crazy and beat Stephen Thompson, I wouldn't be that shocked. Uh, when you look at the rest of this card, this uh, ESPN Plus card, that we're yep. just going to reel these out every weekend, I don't know if this is the one that gets people to say, oh, damn it, i got to subscribe. Yeah. I, I've put it off too long, but, man, John McDessie versus Jesus Pinedo? Oh, come on, i got to see that. Well, I mean, Curtis Blades against the big pretty Justin Willis. Like, that's one I would watch. Yeah. That would be, that'll be fun. Uh, you got J.J. Aldrich on the card at Women's Flyweight. She usually uh, brings it. Formiga is a uh, is a, a highly touted flyweight. I mean, you, I don't feel like you even believe what you're saying anymore. Th- I'll tell you what this card is. If you had plans and they got canceled on Saturday <laughs> night, and you're like, "Shit, now what?" Hey, man, lock it yeah. in over there on ESPN Plus. Yeah. Just planned your night for you. That girl you met at the bar last weekend stops returning your texts. You, you thought you guys were going to go out. You, you were already making, you know, planning six months down the road in your head. Next thing you know, you don't hear from her. You're sitting around in sweatpants with some mint chocolate chip, and you're going, well, I think ESPN Plus has some action. Let's see if Curtis Blades and Justin Willis are going to have the other kind of heavyweight fight. Haven't yet figured out how to cancel my ESPN Plus subscription. Maybe I'll take advantage of that. Yeah. Watch this Fight Night 148 card. Haven't sent that email. Haven't sent that, you know, certified letter or whatever they required in order to get out of it. All right. Let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Chad, I'm just saying Michael Bisping got inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame or announced that he will be inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. And kind of like... Kind of like nobody noticed. It was like, oh, yeah, hey, well, cool, good for him. He should be in there. And then everybody moved on. I'm just yeah. saying, that seems a little weird. I mean, I understand, like, the actual induction ceremony will be in July. Maybe people have a little bit more time to breathe and take it all in then. But it was like, I mean, maybe got overshadowed by the knockout and the three-piece and the soda and all that stuff. But uh, I'm just saying, seems like that, that deserves a moment. Everybody I, to pause and be like, all right. Yeah, it's another Michael Bisping moment, right, of just kind of like, Nobody stopping to recognize how kind of good he is at MMA fighting, which is sort of very on brand for the rest of his career. I mean, we've discussed at length on this show the UFC Hall of Fame. Yeah. and It's like a hallway, right? Between It's like a stairwell, Yeah, pretty much. Like plaques on the wall and a stairwell from the last time I saw it. Also, though, this is one where if you wanted to be the kind of asshole who's like, oh, he doesn't deserve to be in there. It's just Dana White's boys that get in there. I mean, he is one of Dana White's boys. So, like, that criti- if my People like Michael Bisping, I think, are the ones who should want there to be, like, a more robust, somehow, like, legitimate uh, entry voting system for the Hall of Fame. Because then you could be like, see, look, everybody thinks I, I earned it rather than just, like, Dana White liked me. Yeah. Because <laughs> he does deserve to be in there. Yeah, but, absolutely. But, man, and... Maybe nobody else in there has has paid with as much blood in order to get what he got than Michael Bisping. Fair point. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying, Meatball Molly McCann. Okay. Number one, clearly a nickname she did not give herself. And it's an awesome one. So it meets that criteria in the Co-Main Event Podcast nickname uh, uh, criteria. Second, it's a nickname I can get behind. Yeah. Meatball Molly. I like it. Hell yeah. Tell me more. 
Like Meatball Molly sounds like she ought to be running a truck stop and diner off of I ninety somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I'll stop at Meatball Molly's. Yeah, they got they got good subs out there. I will plan extra time in my trip just so that I have time to eat at Meatball Molly's. <laughs> you you watch this right? She goes yeah. out there and has a, just an absolute slugfest with Priscilla Cashuera. I all sorts of fucked up. Gets her orbital bone broken in the third round. And again, this is yet another instance, Ben, where if it happened to me, I'd be on the couch for months. Yeah. Like as soon as it happened. As soon as I'm like, oh, yep, broke a bone in my face. That's another <laughs> one where I'm hopping over the cage, grabbing my bindle stiff, and hailing a cab going straight to the straight to the hospital. And seeing if I can get a hospital bed for weeks. <laughs> Molly McCann is yucking it up. With people after the fight taking yeah. pictures, acting like she breaks her orbital bone every weekend. She gets the win here over Priscilla Cachuera. I'm just saying, I'm liking, I'm liking a lot of what I'm seeing here from Molly McCann, the meatball. And when you're walking around, you're out in London celebrating your win, and you have what looks to be a large bulbous growth on your face, and your nickname is Meatball? I mean... You, you got a good conversation starter is what I'm saying. Out, some, out at the pub. Is this some home cooking? Like, should this thing have got stopped? I mean, she's winning this fight, right? Yeah. Then the orbital bone gets broken. So third round. I mean, I guess she just kind of went down the stretch in the third round and got the win. But this thing, this fight's in Nashville and not London. They might have taken a closer well, look. And I mean, if it had swollen up earlier to that extent, you might have a problem. But yeah, we let you cruise by on that. Just saying. Meatball Molly. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Be sure to come back next week. We will be here on Monday. We'll be breaking down everything that happens from UFC Fight Night 148, even though Ben just buried it during this round. Come on. We're still going to talk about it. Talk about Curtis Blades versus Justin Willis. Let's just say nobody's canceling plans for this one. Okay. Then we'll be looking ahead to UFC on ESPN2. It's going to be right. on the actual TV network. How about that? That's going to be Edson Barboza versus Justin Gaethje. Well, so we will all watch that happily. That's going to be some bloody good times. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, you go to Meatball Molly's. Your first question is, is Molly here? Is Molly in? You know? Your second question, what's the super good? I hear if you eat the whole steak, they put your picture on the wall. Oh, nice. The front door. Yeah. You know, I went to one of those places in Iowa and where they had people picture on the wall for you and like a giant steak. You would be surprised at how many people in that moment of glory choose to celebrate for the Polaroid by doing the DX cross shot. Even, <laughs> even modern day. It's still like in America's heartland. Yeah. It's still a the go-to move for a lot of people.